Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Welcome and thank you for joining us in this episode of Educator Essentials, the podcast where we talk with our members about tricks and strategies to help faculty, preceptors, and those involved in the education of the pharmacy workforce. My name is Gina Galanu-Luchin. I serve as the ASHP Director of Member Relations for the Section of Pharmacy Educators. And today we will be chatting with Dr. Timothy Brown about ways that faculty and preceptors can incorporate LGBTQ plus health education in pharmacy. Welcome, Tim. Hi, Gina, how are you? Great, it's so good to have you and such an important topic for us to talk about today. Yeah, I agree. I, th- I think even over the past years, we heighten our awareness of marginalized populations. Conversations like these only help us learn how to train and educate the next generation. Absolutely. And helping each other, right? Sometimes we may lose some creative focus and creative juices, and hopefully we'll be able to center that and give some folks ideas on what they can do. So before we start, can you share with us a little bit about your experience with medical and pharmacy education and experiential learning, giving our audience a little bit of background about you? Sure, absolutely. I received my PharmD in the 1990s and did residency, but I really wasn't sure doing all of that, sort of what I want to do with it for my uh, career. I ended up falling in love with primary care and joined a practice about 26, so almost 30 years ago now. And During the course of being a part of that practice and growing my practice model there, I was fortunate enough to also be faculty for medical residents and medical students. And then, of course, we added the pharmacy residency and pharmacy students coming through for rotation. So teaching a lot of that in the clinical setting, also doing a lot of didactics as a professor at the local medical school in Akron, Ohio, uh, really helped me out a great deal. I will say, though, about two years ago, I decided to transition and leave clinical practice, I really wanted to focus much more on training and education. And I joined academia as the director of interprofessional education for the University of Georgia's College of Pharmacy. But also, I am a shared faculty. I spend 50% of my time as a professor in Augusta University Medical College in teaching medical students. So I still am able to teach both sides of the coin, if you will. And it keeps uh, keeps me current everything that's going on. I may not practice any longer, but I love hearing about new and innovative ways we're teaching the next generation of practitioner. So you're keeping your, your hand on the pulse, so to speak, figuring out what, what the current trends are and um, helping our learners hands on. Try my best, Gina. <laughs> I don't think we can ever be perfect, right? But we can strive for perfection. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Well, you know, as healthcare providers, the aim is that we provide compassionate, personalized, and evidence-based care to all our patients. But while our profession and the community is making positive strides, I think we have some room for growth. And as you mentioned, we've seen that over the past year of shedding light and some and some growth opportunities we have as a society and as a healthcare profession. So, for example, evidence is showing us that LGBTQ plus patients face health disparities that affect their mental and physical well-being more so than our other counterparts. And so in thinking about education and in thinking about practice and in thinking about your perspectives as an educator, how do we incorporate these discussions within pharmacy education and what is the role of educators in leading this, this discussion? Yeah, I think, you know, as you said, shedding light on this, these disparities and these populations have been marginalized for decades, if not even longer. So what's changed a lot for, I think, healthcare in the past five years has been that realization 
that not everyone feels comfortable within the healthcare system, not just because of the jargon or everything that's going on in healthcare costs, but just feeling welcomed for lack of a better term. And LGBT is no different. When you talk about the LGBTQ plus population in general, there's a lot more of a distrust of healthcare, mainly because of the way the population has been treated in the past. Uh, you know, remember, they once said this was a mental illness to belong to this population. And that just set a nasty precedent among some people. And then the HIV pandemic happened. And we saw, we lost so many of our friends and family members to HIV and the healthcare system really didn't respond as quickly as maybe some had wanted. So there is a history of just not having that trust in healthcare. Uh, even today, there was a 2017 survey that showed 8% of the LGBTQ population had actually been turned away from a primary care office because of their sexual orientation. And if you're transgender, about 27 or 29% said they had been turned away when they told the practitioner or the provider's office that they were a transgender patient. This is in 2017. We're still seeing people not receiving care that belong to this population, identify within this population. And so it's upon us now to talk about education of how we train and talk to healthcare professionals while they're students. So when they graduate, they understand their oath is about taking care of all patients, not just a certain segment of the population. So this does blend in really well with the DEI conversation that you're hearing with accreditation standards in many of the colleges for health professions. Absolutely. Those are some tragic statistics when you sit and think about that in 2021, we're still struggling with these issues. And I'll tell you here working in, in Athens, and it's not just in Georgia, it's anywhere, but I have a friend who was trying to get into a provider's office. And as soon as he said he was transgender, five offices said, I'm sorry, we don't take your type of patient here. Mm -hmm. That was exactly the wording, your type of patient. I was mortified to be a healthcare professional hearing those words being told to a potential patient for a practice, a primary care practice, which, mm -hmm. you know, is <laughs> the whole purpose to be there is preventive care and to see people before they're ill. So, exactly. yeah. And you're alluded to that, but it, it sounds like there's a gap in the education for these populations. It sounds like our providers are not necessarily always being trained consistently to take care of LGBTQ plus patients. And so thinking about it from the educator standpoint and, and in both curricular and experiential education, can you tell us a little bit about your experience on how you help learners, whether it's pharmacy students, medical students, become more educated and familiar and comfortable with this population so that they can be better providers? Sure. And I think the, the first step is just realizing that everyone needs to be taken care of. It doesn't really matter which population they belong to. The right. second part is realizing that certain populations have specific healthcare needs. It may not work for all populations, but we know that certain populations have a different need or a different type of healthcare preventive care, depending on who they are or which population they belong to. So as a provider practitioner for the, those years I talked about when I was in Ohio, we were one of the first practices in Ohio to become what they call an ally-friendly uh, office, which mm -hmm. meant that we accepted people from all walks of life. We would work with them in any way we could, and they were safe with us. They were safe with coming to our front desk, getting an appointment. They were safe with our nursing staff. They were safe with the people that were seeing them. The students treated them with respect when they were rotating through. Just that ally sticker on our front door told them that our practice was open to everyone and anyone, and they would be treated with respect there. With that said, within my practice, uh, we were one of the first pharmacy consult services to create a PrEP consult where many people came to see me before they went on the PrEP medication that now is very, very popular, but even 
five, six years ago, many people were still learning about how to use it, who was a candidate, those kinds of things. And so we actually had prep clinic hours where people could come and listen to us and talk about prep, what it meant, but also discuss safe sex practices and how the pill wasn't necessarily a cure for HIV. We also set up a lot of discussion with transgender patients, did a lot of research on hormone therapies, and uh, did in-services with the physicians I worked with to make sure everyone was comfortable caring for these folks and, you know, talking to them about what their options were and how things worked. And that's particularly true for uh, folks that live in the transgender world that are teenagers and working about what they're going to do with puberty with their parents and acceptance and those aspects. And quite frankly, the mental health side of things. We made sure that our social work was involved. And we offered counseling services. All that was done within the practice model that I came from that I have to set up over the years I was there. And I'm very proud of that because I feel like my colleagues and I created an environment that truly was family medicine. No matter what your family's defi defined as, you could seek care within this office. And we tried our best to provide that within our office and if not, at least a conduit to another safe place where they could receive the care they needed. And I think it bleeds into not only the clinical knowledge on some specific disease states you might see more, but also the cultural sensitivity is such a huge sure. piece, right? I agree. I think also, you know, one of my favorite stories ever is, um, for those who don't know, I belong to the LGBT population. I identify as a gay male. And my first partner and I uh, were together very early in my career. And I had a secretary say to me, I'm so glad that I know you. And I said, well, that's so sweet of you to say. And she goes, no, no, you don't understand. I see you and your partner, you know, you go on vacation, you have a house, you come to work every day. And I realized being gay is as normal as being straight, which really helped us because this weekend, my 15 year old son told us he's gay. And what stuck with me was their acceptance of their son was because they were able to see people understand what goes on, but just know and put a name and face to maybe something they had never experienced in their life before, because many people are afraid to identify who they are um, out of fear of rejection. And that one aspect of my life sticks with me that by just being me, I, I was able to help her understand her son and, I don't know, hopefully make it a little bit easier for someone else to come out and feel safe. Exposure is key, right? Making yeah, it is. Yeah, I agree. I think exposure, a face, understanding that people are people. As I said earlier, every population has something specific. You know, as a provider, if you're scared to learn, then why are you a provider? <laughs> I think we learned all of our career. This is just one more gap. I certainly didn't understand transgender hormone therapy at all. I had to read, understand, and then I had to teach it. So um, if I had been afraid, we would never have opened our practice to patients who needed our help. Speaking of exposure, I know you mentioned your practice and the allied health and the different ways that you approached learning. Can you speak a little bit about how you're folding learners into that and whether from the curricular or experiential standpoint, how you're helping them gain that exposure, understand better and have that experience in practice? You know, it's interesting because what I found was I myself just didn't know how to talk to people that I didn't have a background. I didn't understand the necessity or the needs of certain people in certain populations. That includes the LGBTQ population. Even though I identify within the population, I had never really talked to someone who was transgender, for example. So understanding hormones and what the person has gone through and the amount of courage it took for them to seek health care, um, both surgical and medical. So I, I actually became involved with a panel discussion when I was in Ohio at the medical college in which we brought in a panel of people that live within the LGBTQ population, and they actually took questions from the medical students. 
and the questions were no holds bar as long as it was set in respect and it was truly learning it was everything from you know how do i address you what's the nomenclature what what birth or i'm sorry what sex should i put in the chart when i see you um is it okay if we talk about hiv with you because you're a gay male do you get upset is that the only thing that we should be talking about and they ask all these great questions gina and it was just it was wonderful because the students got a chance to learn the panelists were thrilled that someone was trying to teach them how to interact and then at the end of the day i think it just i don't know made us more aware and so i picked that up and when i moved to georgia i approached the medical college here and I was able not only to do that panel, but we've expanded. I now have a three session panel uh, bringing in people from different populations for the medical students to talk to and put, again, a face and a name with someone that they can now identify with and also a safe space where they can learn how to socially interact and make people feel welcome. And um, I've loved it so far. Matter of fact, my first uh, panel that I'm ever programming with people living with HIV will be at the end of August. That's a great program. And I, I love how you're bringing the different experiences and you're exposing students to the care provider and also the patient side too. such an important piece. Can you share with us how you started with your practice experience in the panel, how you set it up and some of the processes that go along with putting the panel together, getting the learners involved and incorporating it into the curriculum? You know, it's interesting. What I found was that the panels, while great in theory, people were like, how is this going to work? Where does it go? <laughs> how, does, how do we even process this? And in talking to everyone, they all thought it was a great idea, but they were just unsure what to do. So we did have to carve time. We took a class that it fit into and we did carve time. We blocked the time about six months ahead of schedule and we started recruiting patients and our people from the populations that we're discussing and really worked hard to diversify the panels to make sure that we had folks from all walks of life. And that was the most difficult part of the process altogether was finding people for the panel. And so what I did was I reached out to other faculty members. I reached out to the local LGBTQ Pride Center. Um, I reached out to a local group here that's called Live Forward that actually oversees AIDS, uh, HIV management and AIDS counseling and testing. Uh, in the community and sort of try to ask if they had anyone they thought they could recommend or refer to. And then each person that came my way, I actually met with them via Zoom and we had a conversation and talked and I laid out the expectations and what was gonna happen. And, you know, I was moderating. And then to be honest, some people just weren't probably great panel material. They just did not have the inclination to, to be there and to answer questions. Other folks were wonderful, but they were scared to sit on a panel. And then some folks said, absolutely, this is something I would love to be a part of. So the process for me was the recruitment of the panel members, quite frankly. And it wasn't that it was daunting. It just took time. So I had to start planning this, you know, about eight months in advance with setting the date at six months and then keeping in contact with the panel members throughout those months, making sure they were engaged uh, and having meetings with them. And I think the meet and greet before we even did the panel was much better. And the reason for that is the meeting greet allowed the panelists to get to know each other. And also they, could, they had a chance to crack some inside jokes and get to know one another with regard on a personal level and who was in their worlds. Uh, and that really made a difference uh, with the way the panel dynamic worked and the way they looked at each other and talked to each other and deferred to one another during the panel. It really was nice to see that group and the dynamic but it did take some work to get that dynamic going and choosing the right people for the panel. And also, quite frankly, time for the organizer to put into it where it's just not a panel and people show up, 
but you are getting it ready, if you will, to be as successful as possible. And then I've already mentioned the fact that about two weeks prior to the panel, we sent out a session agenda so the students knew what was going to happen. And we requested one question per student given to us on a Google Live doc that then was sent to the panelists. And I used and um, put the questions that were similar together. And we led, that, led the discussion points throughout the course of the panel. Of course, anybody could ask questions during the course of the panel as well. This just gave us a starting point um, as we walked through the process. And the questions were not, we're not softball questions, guys. I asked questions like, tell me your worst healthcare moment. Tell me where you weren't treated with respect. Tell me your best moment. Tell me about your history with surgeries. Tell me how you like to be referred to and why, do you, why is that the name you like? All of the panelists knew all this was coming because we're trying to let them understand how life works for particular populations. So they, you have to be able to ask uh, personal questions. And the panelists were great about um, sharing their stories and sharing a little bit of their life for the students and to increase their awareness. But it, you know, it's a little, it was a little bit more difficult than saying, I just created a panel. There was some background work that had to be done. Of course, it sounds like reach into your network, both local, personal, and even your colleagues, and then be patient <laughs> with the time it takes to set it up. Yep. And you know, I would tell you as a faculty member, um, I met so many awesome people, Gina. It wasn't like this was a burden. I actually, I had a great time. It got me engaged in my community, number one. But number two, I got a chance to meet some really cool folks that sit on these panels that I feel that are my friends now. So it, it was kind of a win-win for me. I got a chance to do something I love in terms of education. But it, for personally, I got a chance to broaden my social circle and include some, some awesome folks. So I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, a lot of this a lot of the work you've done is with medical students, student physicians. Um, do you think some of these same principles would be translated to student pharmacists and pharmacy education? And how can we effectively mirror some of these experiences for our student pharmacists? I think you could pick up what we're doing on the medical side and place it in any healthcare professional curriculum. Um, let me just tell you a little bit about what we're doing so people can have an idea. The HIV panel, actually, I recruited folks that are living in the community that um, are comfortable being in front of a group of students. Uh, we have the students all submit at least one question one week prior. We send those questions over to the panelists. Before the panelists even get together, I do a meet and greet. So we all talk and get to know each other. And then I moderate what goes through and what happens. The one thing I tell the students is you can ask any question if it's, if it's asked with respect. If you're there not to be respectful, then we're going to have a problem. And I think that's true across the board because these folks are volunteering to come in to talk about what their lives have been like within healthcare. And, you know, living with HIV has been has drastically changed over the last 20 years from when it used to be a death sentence. And now it's a chronic disease management. If we go into the one I'm programming in September, I have folks that represent gay, lesbian, transgender. Um, I have people of color that are on the panel that identify with the LGBTQ population. So the students in that situation, once again, submit questions. And what really this brings to the students is it allows them to ask questions about if I walk in the exam room, how should I address you? How do I find out who's in your world? Like who's your, do I say husband, wife, partner? Those are the things that people really get scared about. And, and honestly, between all of us listening, pronouns, they trip me up. If somebody uses pronouns that are they, them, I mess it up all the time. And it's a great time to talk to folks and say, if I mess up, is that okay? And, you know, the, the panelists are just amazing about talking about their experiences um, how happy they are that they're having these conversations and the questions are being asked. 
and how no, as long as someone is, is showing respect and they know they really care about them, you can make all the errors when it comes to nomenclature in the world because we all do it. Uh -huh. um, but, you know, those are where we really involve our populations from the community. And so anyone out there in pharmacy schools or colleges, nursing colleges, anywhere, you just reach out to your community and you put these together from those folks and you find a group of people that don't mind kind of being, oh, what's the good word? Transparent <laughs> to the students. I mean, the, the panelists are amazing. If you realize what they're doing, they're letting you ask them a, a thousand questions and they're mm -hmm. there because they want to teach. They want people to understand where they're coming from. And what a wonderful way to give a voice to the population. But also studies have shown that if you do this kind of teaching to healthcare providers or practitioners, mm -hmm. they learn how to be more open. They learn how to ask questions. And also they they work around their own biases that we all have. We, they work around those realizing that they're there to give care. And this really puts, uh, humanizes the population for them or it has with our group. That's why I think it could be popped and moved over to any curriculum. It's just finding the time to do it and a little bit of effort to plan it. I really appreciate the no judgment zone for the learners. I think we talk about this for other principles too, but if this is extra important in any cultural um, perspective and any cultural teaching, you know, it's okay for you to make mistakes. It's okay for you not to know how to do it. It's the important part is trying to learn it and trying to make yourself more aware so that you can be a better clinician at the yeah, end of the day. It's so funny you say that because the third panel that I do is actually in the first year of the, of the medical school and they actually talk to practitioners in the community. So they, I have a physician, a pharmacist, social work, and they're on talking about how they make their practice more open, how they make mistakes every day and how as a practitioner, they're human as well with their own biases. And so, as you said, that's so funny because that's exactly what we're trying to teach the students that you don't have to be superhuman. You just have to be caring and committed to your patients. And that third panel, that's well, actually it's the kickoff panel, but it's the first panel in the series. Those healthcare providers become a sounding board for the students. And they tell stories about how they had made errors and messed up and, and all those things. And it's a great learning experience, but it also levels the playing field for the students before they walk into the panels with the patients because they understand that everything they ask, people have wanted to ask before. So uh -huh. it, it, as you point out, it's a no judgment zone because heck, we all want to know. We just want to be better at what we do. Exactly. It's great. I, I love that program. And, and part of the other um, perspectives and practices you have shared from your clinical background and now as an educator, um, outside of your institution, do you have any similar initiatives as individuals maybe looking for studies or maybe looking for references um, anywhere you think you could point our audience as they're looking to educate themselves? I will tell for those of us who practice in pharmacy, look at some of the medical college curricula. I have done some research on this and found that many of the medical colleges have inserted a lot of ethics and values into their curriculum early on, talking about biases, how to work through it, those kinds of aspects. And then they move on into what they call the art of doctoring. And that really is about the panels that I've been doing. But the students that I'm working with got an entire year to sort of <laughs> examine their feelings. Um, and it was a part of the curriculum. So I would tell you the, for pharmacy educators out there, refer over and look at some of the medical colleges and what they're doing with, bi with biases and with ethics and values and how they incorporate that before they start talking about the panels and engage in the community. Um, the other is right now, there are some pharmacy colleges that are ahead of the trend. They're doing HIV, they're doing panels with patients living with HIV in the third year. I saw some out there that have published on it. There are a lot of different ways you could structure this. 
Um, the only thing that I hear people talking about is we don't have time in our curriculum. And I would say, I don't understand that. Um, this is worth a classroom time of didactics to pull, up, to pull out this hour, hour and a half and put a panel in place, uh, especially if you're already teaching how to manage HIV in a pharmacotherapy setting. What a wonderful addition is to bring in that question answer session with folks living with HIV centered around the same time you're teaching management. Those are things I'm seeing in the literature and what people are being innovative and creative and tying these types of interactions with the community to that didactic setting that has been a traditional way in which we've taught students. And to your point, Tim, I think for students, understanding and absorbing and retaining this content is likely better after they've spoken to patients who are experiencing it, after they've spoken to providers who deal with it every single day. It's no longer just text on a book. It's now real interaction and real engagement. I agree, Gina. I think, you know, as I said earlier, just putting a face and a name to someone that lives in a population humanizes that population. I also want to tell folks out there that, you know, I'm doing this from the medical college. We've been working really hard at the UGA College of Pharmacy as well with DEI and what to do. But I sit on the executive committee for the section of pharmacy educators, and I'm very lucky to be there. And one of the things that we're trying to roll out is getting people to submit to the section what they're doing that's innovative and different and how they're managing the DEI component within their curricula. You know, what are you doing out there that maybe others want to learn about? You know, Jeannie, you ask, how do people find this? I don't think people are blowing their horns enough. I don't think I think a lot of people are doing some awesome stuff but it's not finding its way into the literature or finding its way for other people to replicate or see what's being done. This would allow them to submit it to the section and for other pharmacy educators that belong to ASHP to see what others are doing so they can mimic it, look at it, see if it works for them, but maybe they want to tweak it and change it around a bit and take the idea and expand it. I love that idea of collaboration across educators, building from something that someone started and making it even better. Absolutely. And thanks for that uh, reminder. For those of you who are members of the section of pharmacy educators, please go ahead and look at our Connect community, great threads, discussions, and also you'll find information about how to submit your pearls about cultural sensitivity and include inclusive patient care um, with LGBTQ patients, with patients of color, with minority patients, anybody and everybody. Uh, we really love to learn how you're doing it, what's your innovative idea, and how we can pass it forward to others. Um, as we're about ready to conclude our podcast for today, do you have any closing thoughts or advice for those who are maybe struggling or thinking about it or even don't know where to start? You know, I know we've centered this around LGBTQ+, uh, and that's where, you know, my passion lives because I really want providers and practitioners of the future to understand this population. But it doesn't have to necessarily be this population that's the example in the panels that we've talked about. If you would like to talk about other communities and other DEI projects in which you bring in other populations, if this model sounds appealing to you and, it, and you identify passionately with trying to increase the awareness of those you're teaching, use those populations in this setting to increase awareness of the students and giving them a forum where they can ask questions and be curious, but also binds you to the community and it brings in those people that really are interested in progressing the way healthcare um, is done within our world. Uh, and quite frankly, we have a ways to go in certain situations and this does nothing but strengthen that and help the next generation become better than what we are as practitioners. Absolutely, creative teaching and new ways to really help engage our learners. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, as Dr. Brown mentioned, you can find the link to our submission survey in the podcast description below and also our webpage. Or if you're uh, unable to find it either way, you can also email us at sections at ashp.org for more information. We look forward to exploring this topic in future educational content and hearing from you as well. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's educator resources. You can find member exclusive offerings such as the Preceptor Toolkit, Research Resource Center, and exchange ideas with your peers on SHP Connect. Thank you again for tuning in for this section. Thank you, Dr. Brown, for uh, joining us today. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and be sure to subscribe to SHP's podcast channel. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.